Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning. So the Commerce Clause, which controls our lives from start to finish, (laughs) from moment of birth to moment of death or perhaps beyond, I know that we're not quite done, right? Because we still have one more thing to talk about. Well, no, that's not true. We have lots more to talk talk about, about. but there's one more case we're going to talk about, right, in terms of the Commerce Clause and what it does and how it affects our lives? That's right. Um, So uh, in previous uh, podcast episodes, um, we looked at... um, uh, you know, what's the big deal about a sim- rather simple clause in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution? And um, this time we're going to go ahead and, uh, and look at um, whether or not the Commerce Clause can regulate non-behavior. <laughs> non-behavior? Okay. So, you know, think before uh, we talked about grandma's growing pot, right? Which they were doing something. Yeah, they were doing okay. something, right? And... Um, and the Supreme Court said the federal government can regulate even economic activity in an illegal market. Right, the pot and the wheat thing. Yes. Roscoe, wheat thing was, was regular market, right, and yes. pot was Ill- irregular market. Yeah. So basically the Commerce Clause it, it controls was, all the markets. Yeah, so the next question that, that arises is what if people don't want to engage in an economic activity? Ah. Okay. Okay. And this, and this all comes to uh, the, uh, the fore, if you will, uh, when the United States Congress in 2010 passed the Affordable Care Act, um, known as the Obamacare. Okay. Though, interestingly enough, after the 2016 presidential election, there was still a significant percentage of American voters who didn't know that the Affordable Care Act was also Obamacare. Yeah, I think there was some <laughs> messaging problems with that. And and I think that people sometimes rejected it because they didn't care for the president, president as opposed yes. to the the act itself. And that's not unusual, right? No, I mean no, that that yeah. there's sometimes things are tied to presidents that people later say that was a great thing when they didn't like the person or that really sucked when they really liked the person. So yeah. it's not always indicative of their feelings about the actual thing itself. Yeah, the actual So policy. we're talking about the ACA, right? The yes. thing that is called the ACA. Yeah, the Affordable Care Act, okay? Okay. Now this is the one that's a thousand pages and Oh yes. And yes, yes. was put through Congress relatively quickly for something of its size and nature. Yeah, I mean cuz it 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 was pretty much the nation's most significant reform of health care. And as it relates to congressional power, um, there were two provisions in particular that were extremely problematic as it relates to whether or not Congress could, if you will, reform the health care, the provision of health care in the United States. One is known as the individual mandate. And that's the requirement that all Americans must have health insurance because the logic of the Affordable Care Act was if more Americans or all Americans could pay for health care, then more Americans would actually access health care. So when President Obama was elected, most estimates 
uh, of the American population was that at least 30 million Americans didn't have health insurance. So for them, how do you pay for health care when you don't have insurance? Because in the United States, historically, you pay for health care through health insurance. And if you didn't have health insurance, if you were either poor enough or you were a senior citizen starting in the mid-1960s, either Medicaid or Medicare would help cover the costs of health care. So that's one provision. The other provision, and in in, in again, as Nia just pointed, Nia, as you pointed out, this was a, a lot pages. pages, right? So the the uh, three minute summary here on the podcast is yes. you. Those we'll put a link. We'll put a link to the ACA uh, if you want to go read it, and we would suggest that you probably bring some strong coffee with you. Yeah, or and we may also give you a couple links to where. Um, basically, nonpartisan groups summarized it. Right. <laughs> okay. We'll do that too. <laughs> okay. The other part of of the law that was extremely, if you will, troublesome uh, for particularly states was the requirement that Medicaid coverage be expanded, um, and if states did not expand their Medicaid programs, they could potentially lose all their Medicaid funding. Wait, by expand Medicaid, do you mean they gave it to more people? Well, more people. So, okay, they, so, they, so would, they lowered the the amount of money you had to make in order to, to qualify. Or, is that what it? Or yeah, they they lowered, if you will, the poverty threshold gotcha. for Medicaid. Okay, okay, so more people would get, have access, access to, to it. it. That's okay. right. And because this is United States. Um, <laughs> Somebody was grumpy about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Somebody's uh, always grumpy, grumpy about, about something. something right? <laughs> this actually led to uh, a, a, a pretty land, a pretty significant Supreme Court decision. Uh, NFIB, National Federation of Independent Businesses, versus Sibelius. Uh, and Sibelius was the uh, Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services. Okay, HHS. Okay. Um, can I... Yes. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Actually, can I make a mocking observation? Sure. That's the Federation of Independent Businesses. Yeah. Is there a Federation of Dependent Businesses? No. Okay. Yes. So they just did that because it would give them fun letters to put in. Well, probably. I mean, let's face <laughs> it. Okay. If you're talking about government or governance or interest groups or pretty much anything in 21st you know, century world, you need a cool acronym. Well. Okay. I mean, come on now. VCU. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. How I mean, many people say Virginia Commonwealth University? University? I mean, unless I get, they're suing us or grumpy about something. Yeah, I mean, I got my master's and PhD from Virginia Polytechnic Polytechnic Institute and State University, otherwise oh. known as Virginia Tech. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. I mean, because if, if it can't roll out, if it can't roll off the tongue. <laughs> you belong to what? To right. who? <laughs> exactly. That's why everything is a is CIA and FBI and 
um, USPS. Yes. So, um, <laughs> by the way, that last one is the United States Postal Service. I'm not saying that they do the same kinds of things as the CIA and the FBI. I didn't mean to imply those were equal somehow. Sorry. Yeah, uh, they're all engaged in surveillance. I, <laughs> yeah, no. Wrong, 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 wrong. Go listen to the uh, podcast on post office. You'll find that that's, in fact, not what they do. Um, so, they complain about stamps. Okay. But, so, wait, so I have questions. Yeah, of course. So the the mandate on the health insurance, I know that that is what caused a ginormous cow among common everyday voter people. I know that the Medicaid thing caused a cow um, to be had by governors in certain states in certain states yeah. because they didn't want to expand Medicaid. They were they were resistant to that because of budgetary issues and all that other kind of stuff. A lot of those I know were red states. I don't know that that's necessarily the case in all the cases, but well, that um, tended to be right. The, yeah, the way nearly all those states who challenged the Medicaid expansion were Republican states. Okay. Um, but the individual mandate thing, why did people freak out about it? Like, well, what's the issue with that? Well, it's a... In part, it's a liberty issue. I mean, because you're ba- the, basically the, the United States Congress passed a law that said even if you didn't want health insurance, you had to get it. Or you could pay a, a fine. A, oh, is that uh, was it a fine? Yes. Okay. Okay. It was, you had you you know you could avoid it by paying a fine. Okay. Now, if you were if if you were poor. Either if your state expanded Medicaid, you could get health insurance through your state's Medicaid, or you could go and get um, uh, uh, health insurance on a health insurance exchange, which the government would create. And by the way, um, uh, the, uh, uh, those who wrote the Affordable Care Act assumed most states would create their own health insurance, if you will, markets, exchanges. Interestingly enough, over half did not, okay, because um, they just didn't like the law, okay? And in part, a lot of the opposition, some of it was this was the signature Obama administration domestic policy achievement. And they didn't and like him. I didn't, yeah, we didn't, I don't like Obama and I don't like this. But a lot of, a lot of the pushback was, okay, those who were like, what's the federal government doing telling me that I have to engage in an economic activity. Okay. What if I, what if I don't want health insurance? And by the way, I happen to deal with a lot of people, young people who don't see the need for health insurance. Right, cuz they're young and they're healthy. Yes. The theory with the exchanges was that young and healthy would help cover older and sicker, right? Or older or sicker. Well, in fact, um, the, the health insurance I mean, the, industry... Isn't that how it works? Yeah, the health insurance industry basically told those who are crafting the Affordable Care Act, if you don't want us to oppose your version of health care reform, like we opposed the Clinton administration effort in the early 90s, you're going to need to go ahead and mitigate... All the costs we're going to have to assume for people with pre-existing, pre-existing conditions and a whole bunch of unhealthy people. And the health insurance industry said the population we want, and they actually call them this, is young healthies. Young people who don't have um, as, as many, if you will, chronic conditions, 
costly conditions, aren't engaging in life activities that cost a lot of money in regards to health care. That's what the health insurance industry said very clearly to those who were writing the Affordable Care Act. Okay, so you had a lot of people who were like, I don't need health insurance. I've lived, okay, either a short life or a somewhat long life without very little health care. Why do I need to get this? Right? Okay, but we do that. But the government does that for other things. It mandates that you have a driver's license, which you have to pay for. It mandates that you have registration for your car, which you have to pay for. But again, I mean, you can choose not to drive. But you have to have a state. You have to have a state, a valid state ID for a lot of kinds of things like travel and that sort of thing, which you have to pay for. So, yes, I mean, they could say, okay, well, you can never travel. You can never go anywhere and you can't ever register. But if you ever registered, even okay. for classes here, you have to have an ID. But you're talking about and the state. And a state-issued ID costs You're talking money. about the state. But doesn't Medicaid come through the state? It's a federal government program. A state could choose not to provide Medicaid. Really? Like sure. completely? They could just sure. say, we will not take care sure. of any of the yes. poor, sick people in our state? Sure. And in fact, one of the reasons why states objected to Medicaid expansion was that when the Medicaid program was created in the 1960s, the federal government covered 90% of all state costs. When the Affordable Care Act passed, the federal government's share of state Medicaid costs was 50%. Many states felt as though they got sucked into providing a welfare program for their neediest citizens, and the federal government began to back out. So part of the objection for some states, usually conservative and definitely conservative in regards to budgets, was that how do we know if we do Medicaid expansion, the federal government won't go ahead and pull the rug out from under us like they did with Medicaid initially? Oh, and then say we'll only pay 10% or 50% or 90% because the Medicaid expansion, okay, 90% of the the expansion costs would be covered by the federal government. And some states were just like, yeah, we've heard this before. (laughs) And the difficulty for states is, well, then how do you turn around and say to a whole bunch of people. To your neediest citizens. Okay, who are now receiving Medicaid. Sorry, we're cutting that benefit because those citizens don't care who's paying for it. They just know that they are receiving, okay, this necessary benefit from the government. Okay. Okay. So, and the government's sort of all or nothing proposal made them bonkers because. Yes, they said that Congress doesn't have the authority to do that. To cut the program as it is as it currently stands. To, to remove all of their funding if they don't agree to do something that Congress wanted them to do. So Congress was essentially blackmailing the states. Sure. But that happens a lot. Sure. <laughs> I can tell from the look on your and the way you said sure. Like, hey. yeah, they do that all the time. Nia. Okay. Uh, starting, <laughs> okay. In a previous podcast episode... We talked about ear- you. You just are out to destroy every bit of naivete I have left, and I don't have that much left. But you're just out to kill it all. Yeah, by, by 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 the <laughs> by the end of of, of us of us doing civil discourse, you'll be like, 
I don't believe in anything anymore. <laughs> yes. I am this holy, jaded, cynical, okay. Sad, <laughs> tragic human. Right. Okay. In a previous podcast episode, <laughs> you and I talked about federalism, the relationship of the federal government to the states. And there are eras of federalism where state governments were either equal to or maybe had a little bit more power uh, than the federal government in our country's history. But starting with the New Deal in the 1930s, um, political scientists refer to the era of federalism that started then as cooperative federalism. And I joked, it's cooperative like when parents say to their kids, oh, you want money to do X? Well, to get that, you have to do Y. You cooperate because you want the money. Right. Okay. You don't have to take out the garbage, but you're not going to get a new you you may, know, game for your for, console or whatever. Yeah, right. Okay. Or, you know, you're not going to get those shoes that you've been dying for. Okay. Right. Or you. No Beyonce concert for you. you no, yeah, right. Or you don't get to use the car. Right. Or, <gasps> okay, you don't get to go to that summer camp unless you do X, Y, and Z. Right. Yes. So you call. Often grades. Yeah. So. We, we, we well, come. and professors do that sort of. Sure. If you don't, if you don't do these things, you're not going to get at least a C, which means I'll be seeing you again. again. That's right. Okay. okay. So <laughs> we refer to it as cooperative federalism, um, but you know, states frequently believe that they were being extorted because coercive I mean, federalism. Yeah, coercive federal. <laughs> I'm glad. We're going to come back to the uh, to the word coercive in just a few moments, okay. right? So, the Affordable Care Act gets passed, and almost immediately, because this is the United States, lawsuits were filed, right? And the two main, if you will, challenges to the Affordable Care Act before it even got implemented concerned two different congressional powers. One is the Commerce Clause. Could Congress regulate non-activity? And then the second was, could Congress use its spending authority as a way to incentivize states to um, uh, 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 engage in Medicaid expansion? And both get explored in NFIB versus Sebelius. Okay. So... In regards to the Commerce Clause challenge, a narrow majority of the court went ahead and said Congress cannot use its Commerce Clause authority to force people to engage in economic activity they don't want to. And by the way, when people don't buy health insurance, but then they get sick, it has a huge impact on health care costs because those costs usually end up being uh, shared or redistributed to those with health insurance because the insurance companies, okay, or the hospitals want somebody to cover the costs of somebody without health insurance who needed health care. So premiums go up. Premiums go overall, up. Overall. Yes. In uh, order to okay. help cover some of that. I know some of it's written off. Sure. Right, as as pro bono sort of things, yeah, yes. but some of it is not. And uh, yeah. Every year, my my premium goes up just a little, 
even though my medical care has not particularly changed year to year. Sure. And it's to help cover things yeah. like that. Okay. okay. But a narrow majority of the Supreme Court said... By narrow, you mean 5-4? Five, 5-4. Four? Five, four. Okay. Okay. And these were the five... Our least favorite number when it when it comes to the Supreme <laughs> yeah. Court is 5-4. Yeah. yeah, because the losers are are always like, oh, if we only had one more vote. <laughs> okay. And, yep. and, 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 and everybody who ruled against us, okay, they're all enemies of the state. They're being activists. Yes. Right? They're grumpy. <laughs> yes. And we're peeved. And yes, that's right. Yeah. It's much better when it's 8-1. One, 1 or 7-2. Or 7-2. Because then it's know, a clear. Or, or the best is 9-0. Right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, how often does that happen? Well, actually, <laughs> it happens more often than the media would suggest. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Because uh, I would ima- I would figuring that you couldn't get those folks to agree on a ham sandwich, let alone. Uh, no. Uh, typically, uh, over the last decade, in most Supreme Court terms, uh, over a third of the cases are desi- uh, are decided nine zero. Wow. Okay, but those aren't the cases that they get, hears about. But yeah, they get reported, right? Okay. Because these are like you know tax cases or you oh. know administrative law cases, right? Or um, no offense to the SCOTUS, but what I think of is boring cases. Yeah, yeah they're 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 actually, not the newsy. Yeah, I mean, and and and, 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 and in fact, among the justices. Uh, typically, those are the cases that are referred to as dogs. You, dogs? Uh, yeah, like nobody, none of the justices actually want to write the majority opinion, but they <laughs> they get shared among the justices. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, right? Cause, like, oh, man, I don't want to write this. We all agreed on something. Yeah, right? What, do then they nobody like, will read. Do they like being feisty? Is that why they want to write well, the ones they, that you know, are they, you know, they want to write the majority opinion in a landmark case. Oh, right. So I mean, come on. I mean, so they, they, they got is, egos like the rest of oh, us, okay. right? Okay. That's hey. fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if that's all you if that's all you do in a year, right? Is yeah. is hopefully <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hopefully be cantankerous enough to get to write your name on a landmark case. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but so the the five conservatives, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, uh, Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, uh, Clarence Thomas, and Sam Alito, all agreed that Congress could not use its Commerce Clause authority to force individuals to buy health insurance. They said... Totally makes sense for that group of people. And they were like, okay, you know, we have never gone that far, okay? We, you know, the farthest we've we've gone is what we discussed um, in the previous uh, podcast about the Commerce Clause. Uh, You know, you can regulate individual economic activity if... It was replicated in the aggregate. It would have a substantial impact on the nation's economy. But these are people who don't want to participate. Okay? And that is not commerce. Okay? It's uncommerce. Yes. It's uncommercial. (laughs) Right? Now, the second argument the federal government made to support the individual mandate was the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, which is also known as the Elastic Clause. Elastic clause? Yes. Okay. The what, necessary and proper clause. Let me guess. It stretches to cover everything else? Yes. <laughs> like a rubber band. That's the, ah. way, that's the way I describe it uh, in my classes. In fact, I got one on my wrist right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad you guys can't see this because I'm actually pulling on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So basically, uh, in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the framers slipped in this clause the necessary and proper clause. Other duties as assigned. It, it's, yeah, 
in a job description. In a job description right. that the very last line is, and other duties is assigned, which basically means we can make you mow the lawn, drive the truck, do whatever. Like Yeah, make coffee for a whole bunch of people. Do yeah, whatever. Yeah. And if you're a professor at the university, like, yeah, I'm going to need you to mow the lawn. I mean, like, and <laughs> there's not much, you know, I mean, not quite. But it's pretty close to that sort of thing. Well, I'm going to have to think about that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Other duties is assigned is an incredibly powerful phrase. So apparently, what is it? Nece- necessary and proper. Necessary and proper right. is a similarly powerful phrase. Yeah, because it basically expands potentially all of Congress's listed powers in Article One, Section Eight. Uh, the classic case example uh, arose um, in uh, the early 1800s: uh, McCulloch versus Maryland. Uh, the federal government had created uh, a national bank. Actually, it was the second national bank. And basically, the purpose of the national bank, or at least the second version, was, you know, what do we do with the revenues the federal government collects? And, you know, do we want members of Congress to take that money home? No, right? <laughs> we need Heck a bank. No, we'll never see that again <laughs> yeah, if right? we do that. Okay, we need, we need a bank. The problem is all the colonies, which eventually became states, had already created their own state banking systems. So many of the states were like, hey, wait a minute here. If there is a national bank system, that's competition for our own state bank systems. So many states, including Maryland, began to tax the branches of the national government bank within their state jurisdictions as a way to kind of discourage them from actually operating in the states. Well, the case goes to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court in unanimous vote said um, the bank was necessary and proper for Congress to enact or create to achieve other functions given it specifically in Article 1, Section 8, taxing and spending. And Maryland was like, oh, man, right? Okay. <laughs> As a state. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be awesome to hear. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, everybody, all at once. Oh, oh man. man. <laughs> but th- 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 that case is also known for um, uh, the Supreme Court reminding the state of Maryland and all the rest of the states that uh, – uh, Federal law is the supreme law of the land, that if there was conflict between a federal and state law, as long as the United States Congress can point to one of its enumerated powers, that's the supreme law. Okay, And Maryland was like, okay, well, we can tax it. And Chief Justice John Marshall, writing for the majority, said, the power to tax is the power to destroy. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. That's really cool. That's something that should go on a cross-stitch pillow. Yeah, right? <laughs> Actually, I think the Tea Partiers, okay, <laughs> used to say that at their rallies, right? So the federal government in the NFIB versus Sebelius case argues, well, the individual mandate is necessary and proper, okay, to improve, okay, the general welfare and to regulate commerce, Okay. And again, a narrow majority, John Roberts and the other four conservatives said, okay, necessary and proper has to refer to a specific power. The specific power that 
the federal government argued in this case was commerce. And we just said, you can't use the commerce clause to regulate non-activity. Nice try. <laughs> However, the third, if you will, argument that uh, the Solicitor General made in front of the Supreme Court uh, was... Uh, was that Ms. Oh, was that Mr. Holder? No. No, that was uh, that was uh, Donald, Donald Vertelli. Okay. Okay. Solicitor General, different person. That's right. Okay. Solicitor General's uh, main job in the uh, Justice Department um, is to coordinate and to argue most of the um, uh, federal government's uh, uh, Supreme Court cases. Oh, okay. Yes. So. In fact, uh, scholars have referred to the Solicitor General as the 10th justice. Oh, okay. Because they argue so frequently in front of the Supreme Court because the federal government is frequently, okay, a party in a case. <laughs> yes, United States versus fill in the blank. Yeah, right? Or fill in the blank versus the United States, right? right? Uh, but also, the Supreme Court, when they're trying to decide to take a case, will, will sometimes ask the Solicitor General, is this case important enough to the federal government that we should take it? When does the Solicitor General ever say no? Uh, when uh, the Solicitor General, i.e. the Justice Department, is afraid that the, if the Supreme Court takes the case, they may issue a ruling against the federal government. Oh, so they'll say, no, nah, nah, we're good. Yeah, we're, we're good. good. Yeah, this, we're we're this, just going to pop out for a burger and beer. We'll see you guys next time. This case really isn't important. It doesn't oh, raise okay. important matters of law. <laughs> or you all might want to wait until the lower courts, you know, work on this a little bit more and clarify the issues. Oh, hence the 10th Justice. Yeah. Okay. okay. But also, I assume that that person knows them really well. Oh, because sure. Because they're around them all the time. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, one of the current Supreme Court justices, uh, was the Solicitor General uh, 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 for part of the Obama administration, Elena Kagan. Ah, okay. Uh, Thurgood Marshall was a Solicitor General. Okay. So uh, Robert Jackson, during uh, the 40s and 50s, he was on the Supreme Court. Uh, before that, uh, uh, part of the time, he was Solicitor General. In okay. fact, he was so good at arguing cases that a couple of the justices uh, a remark that he should be made Solicitor General for life. Wow. Mm hmm Okay. Yeah. So, so that's... And by, and by the way, even if you don't go from being Solicitor General to the Supreme Court, you can end up arguing so many cases in private practice after being Solicitor General to where, like, you are the go-to person or persons for... Uh, uh, any party uh, that wants to appeal to the Supreme Court. Oh, oh, um, the gay marriage case. Those two guys were known for being... Ted Olson and David Boyce. Right? Weren't they known for being and, and Ted very Olson, familiar with arguing in front of the Supreme was, Court to the point where... It's called the elite Supreme Court bar. Oh, okay, where they yeah. were picked for that purpose, like they were brought well, in for, for that, that purpose. For that purpose. Ted Olson... On both sides, right? Yes, like yeah. Like one on each side. Yeah, I mean, um, so you have former solicitor so, so generals for Democrats have, and Republicans... Um, who are the go-to people? Um, Bush II's solicitor general for part of uh, his uh, two terms was a guy by the name of Paul Clement. 
Uh, he's basically the go-to guy for conservative groups who want to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, NFIB, okay, employed him to be their legal counsel. Ah, okay. Okay. So, so it's a it's a great. I mean, um, it's an it's an important position. It's it's recognized as one of the most important advocacy positions, legal advocacy positions in the United States. Okay. Okay. So you yeah. got to have chops to be doing this. Yes. And isn't there you? Not anybody can argue in front of the Supreme Court, right? Like you have to have a certain. Oh, you, you have to be admitted to the Supreme Court bar. Right. Okay. So yeah. there's there's not that many people to start with, and no. then you become one of these people. Yeah. And, and then you begin. Sort of, yeah. And, and in fact, there's a criticism that has arisen um, that the elite Supreme Court bar um, is, um, uh, is so known to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court prefers to have those lawyers argue cases because they know they're going to get quality written briefs and quality oral arguments. Okay. But that means a whole bunch of attorneys around the United States, okay? Can't. Well, I mean, the Supreme Court. Can't argue in front of the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, because the Supreme Court's just like, okay, you know, we, you know, you got an hour. Now, NFIB versus Sebelius actually stretched out over three (laughs) days. I kid you not. Well, and I know that um, when you go before the Supreme Court to, as an attorney, the only thing I know about it, because I haven't, I've yet to go to one, I would like to at some point, um, but I've not yet set in on an argument, is that you get about, what, like 15 seconds, and then they can start asking you questions. So you also you, have it, to be It doesn't person, even have to be 15 seconds. There have been some attorneys that... that stood up and said good morning, and no, that no. was... <laughs> well, the, the, uh, each attorney uh, starts their 30 minutes. They get... 30 minutes each. Each starts with, may it please the court. There are some advocates that barely get out of their mouth. May it please. And the justices start firing questions at them. So you really have to be good under pressure because oh. they, are, they oh, yeah. are not playing and they're they're going to rake you over the coals as hard as they can because these are big decisions, right? Because they turn away most of their Oh, yeah. Most of the cases that, that get requested, don't they turn them away? Yeah. They only the, take a very small percentage, relatively yeah, speaking, uh, right? Over the last decade uh, 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 per year, the Supreme Court typically gets between eight to 9,000 appeals. The Supreme Court, um, over roughly the last 20 years, has only been taking 70 to 80 cases. Now, I'm not a math major. <laughs> But your odds are not good. <laughs> okay. But I'm kind if of sort of thinking. If we were playing the stock market <laughs> okay. on that, we would be living in a box on the side of the road. Yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's less than 1%. Yeah. Okay. So However, chances of being heard we're, by the Supreme Court are, are, are not good. Are <laughs> not good. Tiny. Yeah. Tiny, tiny, tiny. So, yeah, so when you hear somebody <laughs> who loses a case in state or federal. I'm going to take this all the, the way, way to the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court yeah, you can yeah. basically go ahead and say Good luck, buddy. BS. <laughs> no, you can say, all right, I'll see you at the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Start laughing. Yeah, because okay. not so, going to happen. Okay, so anyway, so, what's so, the third part? Okay, so the third justification uh, that the federal government raised uh, to defend the individual mandate uh, was that they could do this through, the Supreme, uh, through, the, through Congress's taxing authority. It was problematic to make that argument because the Affordable Care Act never uses the word tax. If you didn't 
purchase health insurance, you weren't taxed. The law said you got fined. But isn't a fine a tax? Well, more so because the federal government agency that would be monitoring and collecting the fines <gasps> was the IRS. Was the Internal Revenue was the IRS. Service? That's right, because you had to put on your tax return whether you had purchased in the previous year. And, in fact, and if you hadn't, then the little thing kicked in with the fine. That's right. In fact, employers who offer their employees health insurance had to send you a tax form to attach to your tax return to document that you had health insurance. Yes. Okay. Now, the reason... And now we, it's just a number yeah. that you can attach. Yeah. But it is still on your your W-2 from your, you know, from the yeah. state and all that, I think. Yeah, from anyway. your employer. Uh, from yeah. your employer. So the reason why the <laughs> law did had... That was dashed clever of the people who wrote the law. Yeah, well, and they did it for wholly political reasons. There were um, uh, uh, members of Congress, Democrats, who won elections in generally conservative states, red states, who basically said to those writing the Affordable Care Act, if you put tax in this law, okay, not only is there opposition in my state, okay, to, you know, the individual mandate, but if you put tax in this law, okay, you make it really difficult for me to run for re-election because in my state, they don't like taxes. They don't like any tax. So you would make it really difficult for me to win re-election. So they didn't say tax. They said it was a fine. <laughs> okay. F-I-N-E. And I know sometimes I, you know, with the, the way I speak, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the last consonant doesn't get pronounced. We're talking about fine, not fined. Okay. Ah. Okay. It's a fine. It's a penalty. Right. right? But it would be collected by the IRS, right? Right, during tax season. That's right. So, or taken out of your return. I mean, like there were some, yeah. uh, there were various ways that could work. But So, John Roberts. Oh, can I just side note yeah. something? I don't think anybody likes taxes. I think there are some states where people are more willing than other states to pay taxes. Oh, yeah, that, that's they, fair. Because they perceive a benefit. Yeah, I to mean themselves for whatever that. Yeah, I mean generally. But I'm uh, not the, sure the, that anybody's like, oh, I shall embrace this tax well, because I mean, it makes know, the, me happy. You know, the accepted wisdom is Republicans uh, are less likely uh, to want to pay taxes than Democrats. On the other hand, uh, a whole bunch of blue states have uh, didn't like the tax reform enacted during the Trump administration because they don't get to write off the uh, state taxes that they pay. In their states, states that have higher tax rates than red states, New York and California, <laughs> yeah, New York versus and <laughs> Mississippi and you, you know, know Alabama or or Texas and Florida that don't have income taxes, right? Okay, yeah, the, the Democrats in those states are just like, hey, wait, wait a minute what? here, wait, what? wait, wait, whoa, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I don't like our state taxes anymore, <laughs> right? Because I don't get to deduct them off of my federal tax return. Oops. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. Nobody likes taxes. Okay, and it's I don't just, think they give anybody a big, warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah. There's just some people who are, you know, 
to their core. Oh. Okay. Are like. Right. Okay. You say I, the word tax and they're like, I am moving to a, an island off the coast of Greenland. And yeah, you're like, you, okay, well, okay. that yeah. seems extreme, but okay. do you. So <laughs> John Roberts is the key to all of this. Okay. Because he uh, agreed with the federal government's argument. It saved the individual mandate because according to John Roberts, yes, the law says no taxes, but basically he he said if it, in effect, if it walks like a duck, <laughs> talks like a duck, it's a duck. So he said- If it looks like a tax, tax and it acts like a tax, tax and the IRS takes it from, from you, you <laughs> it's a tax. And he said, and oh yeah, by the way, Congress, Congress is can- allowed. Yes, because right? Congress uses the tax code all the time to incentivize behavior. Oh, like when they when the tax code um, gives you benefits on buying a house, right? Like the first sure. amount of interest and stuff is to encourage home ownership. Yeah, because members of Congress like that. think that you know um, you will act more responsibly if you buy a house and you become all nice and stable, and you won't be do- going off doing crazy things because you have a house you have a mortgage you have a mortgage well and you're likely to be more careful about your neighborhood because you live there and i mean sure. there's all kinds of okay so that's there's, the kind of thing they do they're like here's a carrot you know there's now go earn, do the thing we there's want you earned to do. tax credits if you have kids there's uh, tax credits if you adopt kids oh okay higher education if you yes. go back to school you go back to school you know as i tell students you know all of whom are borrowing a whole bunch of money hey when you graduate you get to write off the interest on your student loans that you're repaying. They're like, oh, boy. Oh, goody, thanks. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, I mean, think about how uh, at the state level, there are all kinds of taxes designed to go ahead and get us to stop doing stuff. They're called excise taxes. Oh. Sin taxes. Tobacco right? tax. Tobacco. or uh, Gasoline tax. Gasoline or, or alcohol or on gambling. Yes, we want gambling revenue. But we also don't want you to become an addict. Hmm. Yeah, I know. On the back of the lottery tickets, it says, (laughs) if you need help, part of the money from this lottery ticket goes to helping people who have gambling concerns. Okay. Uh, It's an interesting way to go about it. But so anyway, so so he agrees with the four in the minority. Yeah, the liberals. Okay. So he... He, Which must have been shocking for everyone. Well, in fact, if you read the dissenting opinion in the case, it actually re- reads like a majority opinion that they had to basically, at the last moment, say, oh, this is a dissent. Because <laughs> Roberts basically was part of a group of five that was going to say the individual mandate was unconstitutional. But Roberts changed his mind, apparently, in regards to the taxing argument. Ah. And it saved the individual mandate. Saved it. Right? So we still have it today. Of course, interestingly enough, it doesn't get implemented because the IRS's funding the last two years uh, from Congress has no money to check on whether or not people have health insurance. Ah, so, so, <laughs> so instead of repealing it, it's President Trump has... has sort yeah. of negated it by you you don't check so you just trust people when they say yes or yeah. no or whatever and, and most of us okay. now have been inculcated into okay we need health insurance right so we, or 
our employers give it to us. Many people are now on expanded Medicaid within their states. So, you know, they're on it. Others have found low-cost options on those health insurance exchanges, so they have it. Um, so, you know, I think the last estimate that I saw is that uh, the Affordable Care Act has led to nearly 21 million Americans uh, getting health insurance that didn't previously have it before the law was passed. Oh, okay. Okay, so we don't have universal compliance, but, I mean, you know, that's a significant number of people who can now pay for health care. Okay? It's a significant number. So, in, I mean, the end, in, in the end, it held up. Yes. But then there was the second challenge, and that was the Medicaid expansion. And that's a uh, that touches upon federalism, states' rights, and whether or not Congress can use its spending authority to coerce you to do something you don't want to do, right? So the argument against Medicaid expansion was basically um, uh, the federal government was infringing upon states' ability to decide whether or not they wanted to provide okay expanded health care for their their poorest citizens okay and this all came down to uh, a case a precedent that was decided in 1984 <laughs> you're like we can't even go there with the irony of that yes okay uh, <laughs> yes George Orwell alert. <laughs> It's been a, a, a actually a, a couple of podcasts where we haven't mentioned okay Orwell in 1984. <laughs> we apologize to our listeners. Yeah, that's right. Okay. We'll try to fit that in each time yes, from now on. Yes, okay. Or uh, Endgame, one uh, or the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what do they call that when um, um, uh, um, on video games and on like you know TV shows? Uh, what is it, the Rabbit or you know the 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 the, the thing that. The, the the producers or the directors they throw something in uh, just so longtime viewers are just like ha ha ah, uh, Easter eggs yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 rabbits okay <laughs> <laughs> thank you Nia rabbits That's bunnies okay, okay. <laughs> so in South Dakota versus Dole um, what was that issue was Congress had passed a law uh, that basically said if states wanted to receive their full allotment of federal highway money. They had to raise the drinking age to 21. Oh. Okay. Because there had been studies in the late 70s, early 1980s that said if you raise the drinking age to 21, you would reduce highway fatalities by a certain percentage because many highway fatalities were a result of young people drinking and then getting behind the wheel. And many states in the late 70s, early 1980s, uh, had drinking ages of 18, not 21, okay? Um, so South Dakota was like, yeah, we don't want to raise our drinking age. But the law said if you didn't raise your drinking age, you lost the equivalent of 10% of your annual allotment of federal highway dollars. Now, in many states, and, and again, this is cooperative federalism, right? Okay, states want... Coercive. Okay. Coercive federalism. <laughs> States want the highway dollars, right? right? That's where you get, you know, um, uh, uh, interstates within states uh, getting repaved. You get new 
you know, new, new exits, lanes, new, new exchanges, is et cetera, et cetera. So cities want them because yes. the yes. more exits you have, the more likely people will get off and buy, buy stuff. stuff. That's right. Okay. So, I mean, states were in a jam, right? I mean, they want their federal highway dollars, right? Construction businesses, firms within those states are like, yes, you want you Heck want, yeah, you want that. Yeah, yeah right. Because okay. how else are we going to get contracts? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and and those of us who drive basically from like Memorial Day to Labor Day are like, yes, because <laughs> we love those highway construction projects to delay our travel times. Right. But yeah. nevertheless. Right. Yeah. Pennsylvania Turnpike. I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah. Right. For hours. <laughs> I'm looking at you for hours. <laughs> right. Anyway, I love that. <clears throat> so South Dakota basically made two arguments. They said. Uh, 10th Amendment, you know, uh, states' rights. But a more specific argument they made was based on the 21st Amendment. The 21st Amendment is basically known for by many of us as the amendment that repealed prohibition. That's why I made that face. Yes, because Neil was just like, 21st? What the hell is the 21st? Wait, that's repeal. What are we talking about? Why does that have to do with highways? But there are provisions in the 21st Amendment that basically said... States get to control the sale, distribution, and marketing of alcohol within their jurisdictions. That's why you have different state laws concerning, okay, the sale of liquor, wine, beer. Pick me, pick me. Like blue laws. Sure. Right? Like blue law refers to you can't buy liquor before a certain time on Sunday and you can only buy it in certain stores. North Carolina used to have blue. I don't know if they still do, but you couldn't just buy beer and wine in the grocery store. You had to go to a special store to do that. And there were certain hours that Mm -hmm. you could do that. That's right. So that was okay. So that was done by the state of North Carolina versus a federal. Yeah. Um, So, you know, for instance, and then in in you know, some states, the, you can drive through like a barn. We we did this in Pennsylvania one time, where you beer, drive beer distributor, yeah, beer distributor. You just you just pull your car in and say, put it in the back, and that's amazing to me. Yeah, but um, by the way, beer distributorships in Pennsylvania could not sell mass quantities of beer on Sundays. Oh, okay. Well, I've so, never tried to buy one on a okay, Sunday. Okay, but uh, so that's why in Pennsylvania, my home state. On Saturday mornings, you would see these long line of cars lined up to go ahead and get their kegs and mass quantities of beer because they basically knew that for all their cookouts on Sunday. Oh, no beer. Yeah, okay. that's right. Okay. That's okay. why, for instance, there's a difference between Maryland and Pennsylvania and Virginia in regards to the sale of liquor. Maryland basically franchise sells franchises to businesses to sell liquor in Maryland. But in Pennsylvania and Virginia, we have a ABC, ABC store. That's oh, okay. right. Okay. Um, there are some states that allow local governments to be dry. Nor- that would be Utah. Utah, Utah's Pennsylvania, I live Virginia, there and you, Tennessee. There are counties where okay. there's no alcohol sold in the county. You see this in states with uh, heavy, uh, 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 if you will, uh, religious populations and uh, 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 strong religious organizations. So, in, like in my home state of Pennsylvania, you had counties, very, very religious counties, where like, yeah, we don't want to sell any alcohol, beer, wine, whatever. Right. Okay. Um, Same in Utah, obviously. Yeah, Utah, Tennessee still has a couple dry counties, right? So, South Dakota's basic argument was the federal government is usurping 
our authority in the 21st Amendment. Now, in South Dakota versus Dole— That's a pretty good argument. Yeah, well, (laughs) you would think. (laughs) I mean, they lost, clearly. But But in South Dakota versus Dole, by a 7-2 vote, and the majority opinion was written by then-Associate Justice Rehnquist, who was a huge proponent of federalism, of states' rights, Rehnquist went ahead and said, yeah, Congress didn't violate either the 21st or the 10th Amendment because he said South Dakota still had a choice. And he said the penalty, losing 10% of their federal highways monies, was not coercive because they could still receive (laughs) 90%. Okay, wait, so if I... If I knock you down and I only take 10% of your lunch money, I'm not really a bully? Is that Yeah, because is that his argument? Because yeah, I've left you with 90% percent, of your lunch money? Yeah, so, you know. You can still get most of the lunch well, you were going to get. get anyways. That's right. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure I'd still be a bully. I'm just saying. Even okay. if I only took 10% of your, of your lunch money. But okay. So the argument made by the opponents of Medicaid expansion was, when the law, when the Affordable Care Act said, if you don't expand your Medicaid program, you oh, lose all of your existing monies. 100% is coercive. That is coercive. And again, a narrow majority. Roberts plus the other four conservatives said, yeah, that's pretty much the definition of coercion. I'm surprised the others didn't agree with that. Oh, the the four liberals? No, they didn't sign off on that. No, because it it does seem pretty coercive. I mean, and I'm a fan of the federal government most of the most of the time, but I mean, I'm going to take everything from you if you don't do this. <laughs> Seems pretty co- coercive. Like, I'm not going to leave you anything. That's very Grinch, the Grinch who stole your entire Christmas. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I'm. I'm. I can't believe I'm going to say that I'm with Scalia on something, but I was with Scalia on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I Justice Scalia, one of the most brilliant minds we've ever had on the court. I recognize that, but it it also there were times when his decisions hurt my heart. So I have a mixed. I have a mixed feelings about Justice Scalia. Yeah, listeners, uh, Nia. Uh, would actually like to use one of uh, uh, Scalia's uh, favorite descending opinion phrases. Some ideas deserve a clunking on the head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a brilliant scholar, but, you know, sometimes... Oh, it, 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 and it, it, anybody who's best friends with um, Ruth, Ruth Bader, Bader Ginsburg, I mean, like, okay, how can you not have respected him at least yeah yeah and i and, and and i tell my students when i teach courts and politics and we focus on the supreme court i say do you know guys you can be friends with somebody who uh doesn't think like you and i said and if you want a really good example um uh, all you had to do was take a look at the uh long-term friendship that ruth bader ginsburg had with uh antonin scalia um uh, they went only, to the opera. I mean, yeah, they, no, not only did their families, you know, celebrate a lot of holidays together. Um, uh, uh, Scalia respected her enough to where if she was writing a majority opinion and he was going to write a dissent, he would give her his dissent early enough to where she could modify her majority opinion to respond to his dissent. He didn't have to do that. Okay. But he respected her. Yeah. 
And uh, she respected him. Him, yeah. And I mean, and, and if, if you wanted to see how much she respected him, uh, take a look at uh, the YouTube clip of uh, his uh, uh, funeral service uh, held in, uh, uh, in the nation's capital uh, when she got up to speak. I mean, because it was pretty obvious. And again, this is not uh, 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 Justice Ginsburg. She's not noted for emotional displays. No, okay? that's not her thing. But she was pretty broken up. Um, and again, diametrically opposed, right? You know, his, his method of constitutional interpretation was like 180 degrees different. <laughs> Whereas uh, she was, you know, careful uh, with uh, her writing. Scalia would go for the rhetorical flourish, okay? Um <laughs> Uh, uh, he liked bright. Oh well, I mean, he's the one who said with with the Gore Bush, get over it. Yes, I mean, he just and he said it to to the sixty minutes <laughs> interview. Yeah. I can't remember which one was interviewing. It was like, get, get over, over it, it, move on. <laughs> You're like, okay, and, uh, and, Leslie Stahl. Yeah, yeah that's and right. She, uh, she, I mean, <laughs> yeah, she, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would not be quite so. I think. Yeah. Um, well, well, yeah, and like he said, you know, hey, I'm Bronx. Okay, uh, Ruth, it, it, Ruth Bader Ginsburg grew up in a uh, a different borough of New York, right? I'm trying to think, was she Manhattan or was she Brooklyn? But I mean, he's Bronx, all <laughs> Bronx, right? And he goes, but it didn't matter because, you know, uh, and, and, and Ginsburg had said for years in numerous interviews, uh, the one person other than her husband who could make her laugh the most was Scalia. Said he was the funniest person other than her husband that she ever encountered in her life. And of course, you know, as somebody who studies the Supreme Court, I'm like, I'm trying to picture Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually laughing, right? <laughs> the fact that he could. I mean, <laughs> she's in her 80s and she goes to the gym every day. Like she, she's yes. a person of determination. Yeah, and, and of she's course, she's decided we, she's. Go- yeah, and I like the fact that she goes to sleep during the, sometimes during the presidential. Uh, the State the, of the, the Union. State of the <laughs> Union. She does what a lot of people wish they could do. Which is just go to sleep. Like, dude, I don't want to hear it. But you know what she said one time is that she has a glass of wine at dinner. What do they expect? And I'm like, see, that that is that I want to be her when I grow up because she's. Just yeah, awesome. you want to be you want to be you want to be in a position to where you can basically go ahead and tell people who have cap where you have been captured on national TV falling asleep. Um, hey, I had a glass of wine for dinner. OK, and it goes on forever. And this is past my bedtime. What do you expect? <laughs> right. right. Okay. I mean, come on. Right. And everybody's just like, oh, yeah, hey, those are good points. <laughs> Whereas the rest of us, if we fall asleep during like oh. any lecture or speech, hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right? Yeah. Why are you asleep? Yeah. Uh, anyways, do you have any uh, more questions about the Commerce Clause? I have way, way more questions mm. about the Commerce Clause, but I think they're going to have to be things that we're going to have to touch on as we go. But it sounds to me like the, the crux of the Commerce Clause is... <laughs> Everything, everything, all actions by all humans that live on this planet are controlled by our Commerce Clause in one way or another. It touches every part of your life. And in part, you are correct simply because the economy today is not as simple as what it was 
when the framers wrote the Constitution. Oh, I have questions for you about tariffs, which I'm not going to ask you during this podcast because okay. I can see you wiping your eye like, no, <laughs> um, do not ask me about tariffs. But no, wait, but that's to. that part of that push-pull of it's an international economy. So yeah. so whenever the Commerce Clause comes up with the states, it's it's interesting to me, to me to see who wins and who loses because sometimes the states wins but a lot of times they don't. Yeah. Because this the that sort of isn't it the Tenth Amendment that says everything not enumerated in the Constitution is under the states? Yeah, it's reserved reserved to the states and to right. the people. So. So that's kind of what they fall back on is, yeah, no, that's enumerated. That's part of the Commerce Clause. Yeah. I mean, in, 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 in what you're just mentioning right now is an argument that Clarence Thomas uh, makes on the Supreme Court with some regularity. Um, uh, excuse me. Not on the Supreme Court. Perhaps in writing. But he doesn't speak when he's at the court. Yeah. I he mean, went like it, four years without saying anything. He's, no, yeah, he went over a he's decade. quite a listener. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he went over a decade without speaking. I'm impressed by that because I would I would not be able to resist the urge to say, "Are you kidding?" To about three quarters of the cases that come, yeah, to one side or the other, and his silence generated a lot of criticism. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of people who still don't like the fact that he's on the court. They don't like the fact uh, many of his rulings and uh, the approach that he uses uh, to interpreting the law. Uh, but his response was. Um, I actually want to hear from the party's attorneys in a not too subtle dig at his colleagues. And he has said, and some of my colleagues like to talk. Yeah. Well, and some of it is showboating in the sense of. Yeah, but I mean, I'm going yeah, I mean, to look like I'm doing my job. Yeah, I mean, to me, and again, I'm not a huge fan of Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence. But one of the reasons why uh, I'm fascinated by him is that he f asks questions um, that force us to uh, at least think about how the law developed the way it did. So, you know, he has openly uh, uh, challenged the notion that the Commerce Clause should be read as broadly as it was in Gonzalez versus Raich. Uh, or even uh, Wickard versus Philburn, the uh, wheat farmer king. Our wheat guy. Okay. I mean, he, he says, if we want Congress to be able to regulate the economy to the extent that the Supreme Court has allowed it, then perhaps we ought to amend the Constitution to reflect that. Okay. It's, it's not, a, the, it, not it's, the worst statement it, in the world it, to make. I mean, yes. if we think that's what Congress should be doing, okay. or if Congress thinks that's what Congress should be doing, then we should find out from the people if that's what the people, people think the, yeah. Congress and, should and, be doing. And, 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 and I don't know the, the correct answer. I do know that the Commerce Clause is, a, is again, you know, we, we started off the first of these three episodes about the Commerce Clause with, this is a rather simple clause. Right? Yeah, it's very short, relatively okay, it's very, speaking. Yeah, right. And it covers everything. And, but it covers everything in a in in a national economy, an economy as 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 big as the United States. Okay, where the, the United States economy as part of the global economy is significantly important, right? I mean, and oh. when and when we talk yeah, if about if we go down, we yeah. take the world with us. So when we, you know, in a future podcast episode, when we talk about tariffs. Um, 
you know, one of the things that we're going to have to, we will explore is when the United States enacts tariffs and it forces another country or other countries to respond, there is a ripple effect on the international economy. And that's part of the difficulty with the Commerce Clause. I mean, what did the framers have in mind versus what's the economy we have today? Because it's, you know, we talked about this with um, Grandma's Growing Pot, right? Gonzalez versus Rage. And I went ahead and talked about how, you know, my most, the most recent semester I taught the case, a lot of my students were like, so if I grow tomatoes in my backyard, theoretically, if everybody in the United States did this, then there would be no demand for tomatoes in the national, okay, you know, uh, 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 tomato market, and therefore the federal government could go ahead and regulate my behavior. I said, well, if there was ever a time where the price for tomatoes falls dramatically and it hurts tomato farmers, maybe. And they're like, but that ain't right. <laughs> and I said, but how many small local organic farmers end up selling their food items to other people in a state or a nearby state? Because, you know, today markets are connected in ways that the framers could not have envisioned. Right. Okay. Um, I ended up buying my daughter uh, uh, a hand-woven uh, bracelet uh, last year that was made by uh, 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 a craftsperson um, in West Virginia, and I saw it on the Internet. I'm not entirely sure she envisioned, okay, demand coming from other states when she started, okay, her business. Right. In fact, I know she didn't because I emailed her to go ahead and thank her, okay, for how well it was put together and my daughter loves it, yada, yada, yada. And she goes, yeah, I didn't really have that in mind when I started making these for my own grandkids, <laughs> right? But I said, at the, you know, but again, okay, the economy today, broadly conceived, is so interconnected, who and how do we regulate it? Right. Well, and some of that is done by market forces, but, but I mean, but, but if but, you don't have the government intervening, people but, but, say, I don't think the government should intervene in the market. I'm like, oh, I bet you do. I bet you do think it should. And that's because why we, there are they, they, certain that's why we, things that we want to be a certain way, and the only way we get that is through, yeah, I mean, is that's, through government regulation. That's how we started getting regulations of the then new economy of industrialization in the mid-late 1800s. That's why we go ahead and get even more regulations when the industrial economies of the 1920s and 30s crashed. That's why we get more regulations of the now post-industrial service economies of many of the, you know, developed Western democracies. How do you go ahead and regulate this stuff? I'm, yeah. I want to tell you something that I, listeners, I have not told Augie this, but I asked my mom about this. Um, well, no, I told my mom we were doing the follow-up 
third commerce clause. I spoke to her this week. And the first thing she said was, oh, Lord. Um, And then, because my mom is hilarious. But anyway, she also said, you should tell... She does not call him Augie. She calls him John um, because my mother would never use a nickname like that. She said, you should tell John. My mother is 82. She grew up on a rural farm in North Carolina. And she said, we didn't buy things. And I said, I'm sorry. She Mm -hmm. said, we didn't buy things. We grew our food. Mm -hmm. We went to school. We came home. We... We had our school books, but she said, you got those at the beginning of the year when you got your set of clothes, your new sets of clothes. And she said, you got two or three new sets of clothes. Mm -hmm. And then you just didn't buy things. She said, you buy stuff all the time. She said, and I buy stuff all the time. Like now, they want to go out to dinner. So they go out to dinner. She said, nobody went out to dinner when I was a kid. She said, when I was born in 1939, she said, people didn't go out to dinner. She said, even after the war, that was not a thing people did. You ate at home. You bought things out of the Sears catalog once in a great while because you you had to slaughter a hog or you had to sell a crop or you had to do something. And even she said even people in cities who had industrial jobs didn't buy things every day. They didn't they didn't have money that way. They Mm. got money once a week. They paid all their bills. They went to the place where where they did business, where she called it trade, Mm -hmm. where they did trade and they paid off whatever they had bought that week in flour and sugar and whatever. And she said, and maybe you had a little bit of money. You could send your kid to the movies or you could go to or whatever. But she said that was not a thing you did every day. And she said, now you can't go four hours without buying something. Because the way the world is set up, yes. the way the world is set up is completely economic. Your interactions with other people are enormously economic. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, uh, how much goodwill you engender with your friends and colleagues because you go ahead and buy them a cup of coffee or buy them a meal. Yeah, Whereas, or bring in donuts. Yes, or, you know, <laughs> but, and you're talking about your, uh, your, uh, your uh, mom sharing her experience. I went ahead and told my grandmother once that uh, one of the ways that I sometimes uh, try to engender goodwill among colleagues is when we have a, a, a faculty meeting or a staff meeting, you know, I would bring in coffee and donuts. And my, my grandmother was just like, you did what? She goes, you know, in my generation, we would bring things from our farm. Right. Okay, we wouldn't right. go out and buy. Okay, uh, she said, you know, we would, you know, uh, you know, bring in things. You know, we would bring in a ham because we slaughtered a pig, right? Or um, uh, or biscuits, or biscuits, or right. or you know, my, my grandmother, she was ninety four. She still makes pies for people. Yep. Okay, she goes, you made it yourself. Right. She goes. You go ahead and buy donuts from a store. She goes, and, 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 and people like this? They think better of you? And I said, well, I don't know if they think better of me. Okay. But Let's not go that far. But they're, they're more willing to tolerate, right? <laughs> but, but it's a difference, right? I mean, you know, uh, my grandmother said, you know, they made their own clothes. Right. You know, she's a child of the Great Depression, right? So they went years without buying clothes, Right. You know, ordering from the Sears and Roebuck catalog was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
and you did it maybe once or twice a year, yep. and you saved up for it, right? Um, they had accounts at the local trade store, okay? Right. And if they Where you got coffee and sugar and, and flour, and the and stuff if, you didn't grow. That's right. And if you couldn't pay it off, okay, maybe you, okay, raised something on your farm that the, the trade store could then Take. sell, mm-hmm. okay? So then you bartered the value of whatever you could bring in to go ahead and pay off whatever credit or whatever debt, okay, you had uh, incurred. And she goes, you know, you guys with credit cards. You know, my grandmother's never had a credit card. Never had a credit card. Yeah, my mom doesn't use them. Okay. My she, m- she doesn't. She's incredibly suspicious. Oh, my mom. It, it, she's it, like, it's yeah. made up money. Yes. It's made up money on a card and it does not real and nobody should do that. So, which is just a different, it's just a different world. Yes. I mean, my stepfather carries cash with him all the time because that's how you pay for things. Yeah, that's what you, my mom does. You buy them with money. Um, my which mom, we're going to talk about, by the way, in another podcast. Broadcast. We're going to talk about fiat money and deficits and all that sort of thing. Yes. So, but, but anyways, the larger point here uh, that Nia and I wanted to get across in regards to the Commerce Clause is, you know, there are clauses in the Constitution. There are laws. There are government documents that on their surface are incredibly simple and straightforward. All right. This is not one of them. Okay. But then you ha- <laughs> then you have to apply it, right? You have to make it work in reality. And the difficulty, whether it's a well-written constitution, a poorly written constitution, the American version is incredibly short compared to other, you know, democracies. Doesn't matter. The hard stuff is making it work in reality because conditions change, people change, people's demands change. I mean, we get all these regulations of the economy in part because people are like, we're being harmed by the economy. Somebody needs to go ahead and mitigate the damage, lessen the damage. We get the Affordable Care Act in part because a whole bunch of Americans couldn't pay for health care. Right. Whether whether you like what we came up with or not. Ten percent of Americans couldn't. Okay. But, you know. And if you think about the healthcare industry, it's like one of the top five industries in the United States. A significant portion of the nation's, if you will, economy is devoted to healthcare. I mean, you're not making stuff with that industry, you're taking care of people so they can do stuff with their own lives. Right. Hopefully, you're helping them live longer and healthier lives. Yeah. So, so, but we're going to find the summaries to it because it is a thousand pages. Uh, not the case, but the ACA the, the, itself. The case, I'm sure, is not quite a thousand pages. Oh, no, 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 no. But, but it's long. But it's long. And we're going to also link to that so that you can take a look. And uh, if you have any questions, you can email Augie because I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> and we're glad you listened. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. 
Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.